Well, we're in John chapter 1, continue through the Gospel of John. We've just finished the prologue, the first 18 verses, the introduction, if you will, to the, to the Gospel of John. And now in verse 19, John actually starts the narrative. He begins the history, the narrative of Jesus and His ministry. John the Baptist, uh, theologians have noted, um, I think in almost every age, is one of the most underappreciated people in the whole Bible. We all understand who he is, but he comes to us in the shadow, in the very shadow of the one he's to proclaim. So it's as John always said, he must increase and I must decrease. John, what we don't, I think, understand as readily is that in the time of Jesus, at least until John died, he was the most popular person, the most famous person in Israel. He was both a prophet and he was one who was prophesied about. We read in Malachi 4, a prophecy about John the Baptist coming. He was becoming the most popular man in all of Palestine at the time of this, this passage that we're reading today. Children, if you have the children's bulletin, if you have the children's message, that picture on the front, who do you think that is? Who's on the front? Do you know Felicity? John, that's right. Yeah, that's not Jesus. We don't do pictures of Jesus. We believe that breaks the second commandment. We don't make images of God. But that's John the Baptist. That's John the Baptist, and he was sent from God. And that's the message that we will see in this morning's passage, that John the Baptist was sent from God. This is John chapter 1, verses 19 through 29. Please stand uh, one last time for the reading of God's holy word. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are a people who are humbled by your word. We understand that we need your Holy Spirit for this truth to be revealed to our hearts, to understand it fully, for it to be effective in our lives. 
This is a difficult thing every week because we know that the world, the flesh, and the devil hate your word. So please, by your spirit living in us, open our eyes to your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever been around when the President of the United States is traveling somewhere, or in my case, seeing general officers travel all over the world, something always happens. There's, there's a, we call it an ADVON team, an advanced team that goes ahead of this very important person and just gets everything straightened out. Where is he going to stay? Let me check the room. Do you have Diet Coke in the fridge? No. You know, you figure it all out. You figure out everything, make everything ready. Where is he going to stand when he gives this speech? Where is he going to go when he does this thing? It's very important for the effectiveness of this person that the Advon team does the job well. Certainly the little details aren't all that critically important, but knowing exactly where he is, who he's going to meet, who he's going to talk to, all these things are critical. If you've seen the president and his entourage when they travel, usually it's four gigantic airplanes, C-17s or more, carrying all of the equipment, all of the cars, everything. They don't rent cars when they show up. They bring them. This is a massive effort. And you might think, well, John the Baptist, he wasn't all that great. That's not a super good Advon team for the King of Kings. And yet, John the Baptist was only the last of the Advon. He was the last of the team sent to prepare the way. And when Christ did come, he burst on the scene with singing of angels, with a star shining in the sky, with Gentile wise men coming from far, bringing him gifts fit for a king. And then he's announced by the greatest of all prophets, John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. We're going to talk about John's claims that he's not the Christ. Secondly, that he's not Elijah. Thirdly, he's not the second Moses. But that he came in response to God. He was sent by God. Hearing the questions of this, this, this team, these, these Levites and sent by the Pharisees, we read, but these Levites and um, <clears throat> Levites and the priests who came. It almost seems like, like that game we played when we were children, or maybe you still played the game Clue, where you're trying to figure out who, who killed the butler or whatever it was. They're just clueless. They don't know who he is. Was it Mrs. Peacock with the pipe or Professor... Professor Plum with the candlestick or Colonel Mustard with the wrench. They, they're just like that. It seems like they're, they're absolutely flummoxed about who John is. The first question they ask, and this is the first point, is that John is not the Christ. They asked him, who are you? It's verse 19. Who are you? 
And his answer reveals exactly the point of their question. They want to know, are you the Christ? We've been waiting. We've been waiting a long time. We as the readers already know the answer because in the prologue, we've been told a lot about John the Baptist already in verse 6, that he was sent from God. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then in verse 15, that he bore witness about him and said that he ranks before me because he was before me. So the reader has already been told that John was not the light. He's not the Messiah. He's not the focus or the focus or the emphasis of this revelation. Rather, he came to bear witness about the light because he outranks him. Jesus outranks him. He was before him. And in this very beginning of the narrative account, this is the question that everyone wants to know. Everyone is wondering, is John the Baptist, is he the Christ? The religious leaders in Jew, of the Jews in Judea, the Pharisees who strove to observe the law with perfection, the Sadducees who were the power brokers of Jerusalem, they were probably disturbed by the popularity of this 30-year-old preacher, baptizer, living in the wilderness. And his popularity was only growing. Even up to the time of his death, as we said, he's probably more popular than even Jesus. So the people in charge want to know, who are you? Are you the Messiah? The Messiah that will free us from the power of the Romans, so they thought. The king who will come and usurp Pilate and Caesar from his influence over Palestine. I think it's, it's special to note too that in this question, we see that there is an expectation of a Messiah. So theologians have debated, well, did they really expect a, a Messiah to come? And this question and the answer actually shows that there was an expectation at the time of Jesus coming for the Messiah, which makes the rejection much more terrible. So John knows their intent, and he confessed. This is verse 20, and it's emphatic. This is an exclamation point. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. It's a very strange sentence in the Greek, but it simply means absolutely not. I am not the Christ. No. John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. So then they asked him in verse 21, What then? Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? To understand the rest of these questions, you really need to understand the unity of the Scripture and the prophecies that they refer to. When they ask John if he is Elijah, they're referring to specific prophecies. And we read Malachi 4. Why would they think that Elijah would return in body? Well, if you remember, did Elijah ever die? No, Elijah never died. Elijah was taken up into heaven. So there was this thought that, based on these prophecies, that Elijah was actually going to come back in person and usher in the king, which is what Malachi 4 seems to indicate. This is written in 430 
B.C., 430 years before Christ, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. If you remember in Luke 1, this is exactly what Gabriel told Zechariah that his son would do. This is what John the Baptist would do. Turn the hearts of parents to children and the hearts of children to parents. Gabriel knew exactly who John the Baptist was. And John did dress like Elijah. In 2 Kings 1, we read that Elijah had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. So when these priests and Levites saw John in the wilderness, wearing, in Matthew 3 we read, clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, you can see that they would think, this is Elijah. This is Elijah. He's come. But the difficulty is that John says, I'm not Elijah. All of the Gospels, there's a problem here because all the Gospels, and indeed Christ's own words, say that he is the prophesied Elijah. But you have to use wisdom to understand it. That's what Jesus said. If you can accept it, if you will receive it. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, All the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is Elijah. Gabriel told Zechariah, I referenced already in Luke 1, that his son would go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that's really how he came as Elijah, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So why did John say, no, I'm not Elijah? Well, it's probably because he's not Elijah. He's John. Elijah's in heaven. But there's also an interesting possibility. Much like most people on earth, he may not have understood his true and full significance in what is the redemption of the redemption plan of God. Certainly he understood that he was to prepare the way for the Lord. But Elijah was seen by all the Jews as the greatest prophet who's ever lived. And maybe he shuddered to think that he would be using the name of Elijah to refer to himself. We read later that he was an extremely humble, humble man. So maybe just seeing himself as Elijah, the greatest Old Testament prophet, was too grand for contemplation. Maybe he lacked full knowledge of his ultimate prophetic mission. But regardless, Jesus, and indeed every Christian since, has seen that he came to fulfill the prophecies coming in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord. So they wanted to know, is he Christ? He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. And then they ask, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. What is this referencing? What exactly is this talking about? Why are they asking that question? Who is the prophet? This is a reference to the prophecy given to Moses by God himself. Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, this is Moses speaking, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. And then God speaking in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, 
and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. The person who fulfilled this prophecy was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who said, All that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. He's the one who did what was prophesied. He was the second and the greater Moses. An Israelite who would tell the people everything God commanded. This was the incarnate Word, the incarnate Jesus. This was part of His mission to show us the Father as we have read. Jesus fulfilled all of these messianic prophecies. Moses, remember last week, Moses was allowed to see the back of God. In other words, he wasn't allowed to see the fullness of God. The second Moses, the greater Moses, Jesus, he was in the bosom of the Father. He was very God of very God. He's one with the Father. So John had to say, no, I am not the promised prophet. No, I'm not Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the promised prophet. Well, now the delegation is just frustrated. We came here to find out who you are, and all we know now is who you are not. You can imagine if you've ever been in this situation. I would always, when I was uh, in the Air Force, and people would go out from my office, I would tell them, don't come back with just a bunch of no's. I don't want to hear no. Find a way to get to yes. Tell me what it takes to get to yes. So I'm sure that these people were sent off with the same kind of mission. You need to find out who he is. You better find out who he is. We need to know who he is. Don't just tell me who he's not. Tell me who he is. And that's what they say. We... We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Who are you? This is verse 23. Kids, if you're writing in your bulletin, this is the blank section on your children's bulletin. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. The voice. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah has said. Making the crooked straight. That's what John the Baptist did. This phrase, I think you've probably seen it as well as I have. Making the crooked straight. It's something that's been, the whole world grabs a hold of that phrase from Isaiah 40 and takes it on to themselves. It seems to apply now to anyone who's trying to write something that's wrong or to, to stand up against some perceived tyranny or injustice. You're making their crooked straight. I read of a man who helps sick children in Africa. And his ministry is called Making the Crooked Straight. That's the name of the ministry. There's a school that's offering classical education somewhere on the East Coast. And the school's name is Crooked Places Made Straight. Everyone seems to be taking this name upon themselves. There's a book about the civil rights movement called Making Straight, Making the Crooked Straight. If you grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard, you know that it's mentioned in that theme song, Straightening the Curves and Flattening the Hills, Making Their Own Way. I promise that Isaiah is not talking about any of these things. 
Isaiah is talking about John the Baptist. There's only one man that fulfilled this prophecy. To crowd in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And it was John the Baptist. He came to prepare the way for the Lord. I do want to talk for just a moment about this metaphor. What is this? Making a way in the wilderness. Making straight the highway in the desert. Lifting up the valleys and lowering the mountains and hills. Making the uneven ground level, the rough places a plain. What is that metaphor? I mean, why is it a good thing to make mountains level or to lift up valleys? If, if we don't walk much, it might not make any sense. If you were going on one of the three required feasts to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's up on a high mountain. If you were coming from any distance at all, and there were no, there's no short trip back then. There's no quick trip to town. There's no quick trip to Jerusalem. Everything is a long trip. And if you walk to Jerusalem, you're walking down, and then you're walking back up a mountain, and then you're walking down into another valley, and then you're going through very rough places. And what your feet want is soft Tennessee grass under it. Just walking straight on a level place. But it's not level. It's windy and full of valleys and rough places and uneven ground. And it's, it's a wilderness for much of the journey, depending on where you come from. So that's the metaphor that the way to worship is made straight and clean and understood. That's what John the Baptist's message was. The people truly were in a spiritual wilderness as well for 400 years. No prophets at all. Nobody speaking for God. 400 years of silence. And they're completely dominated. They're completely subjugated by the Romans. First the Greeks and then the Romans. They had no kings. Where were all the promises? Where was God? And then comes John the Baptist. And he shows them the way to worship. He shows them the way to Jerusalem. Let's look at just two of these prophecies. This is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Very familiar. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, speaking of John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Dr. Spruill said that at the Lord's appearance, we see that nature submits to his will and he removes all obstacles and prepares a road by which the royal procession advances in the establishment of the kingdom. This is part of what John the Baptist is doing. He's preparing the way of the Lord. He was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And he literally served in a desert. He served in a wilderness I believe symbolizing the spiritual wilderness of the people of Israel. 
Now, all Old Testament prophets are ultimately covenant enforcers. They're they're people sent by God to remind them of the covenant, to remind them of God's law, to remind them of the promises, and call them back to repentance. This is what every Old Testament prophet does. Remember the covenant God has made with you. If you remember in Malachi chapter 4, announcing the coming of Christ, he says, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, referring to the coming of Christ. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And then in verse 4, Malachi says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, my slave Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. So remember the law. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day. He will turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers is a reference, I believe, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the family, the whole family, fathers, sons, grandsons, are seen to be worshiping God together. So John, the last of the Old Testament prophets, prophesied in the Old Testament and then fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy by prophesying himself the coming of Jesus. John fulfilled that prophecy. Malachi also says in chapter 3, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, Jesus, will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he is coming. He's coming. I want to take a moment just to look at Mark chapter 12. Jesus knew exactly, of course, he's God, but he knew exactly what had been happening throughout the the centuries and centuries of prophets. The parable of the tenants. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. This, this man symbolizes God the Father. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another slave and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another And him they killed. So these slaves represent the prophets. Moses even refers to himself as a slave of God. He sent his own slaves, the prophets, to the people again and again and again. And they mistreated all of them. And you can almost see the Pharisees, who were so litigious and so exact in all of the way they viewed the law. You can see them as Jesus is telling the story. They probably don't understand at this point that they're talking about. He's talking about them. Because this is a very common thing, to to own a vineyard and to build a wall around it and to to have people who would take care of it for you. And it could take three or four or five years before you got any grapes. So it's common that you would buy a vineyard somewhere else and leave it and go to your own place in the hopes that someday this, this thing would produce for you. 
So this was a common thing that he's reading, or this story that he's telling them. You can see, almost see the Pharisees saying, what did they do? They, he sent his slave to them and they took him and beat him? Who, who, is, who is this person who would beat the master's own slaves, his own people? And then they sent another and they struck him on the head? Literally, they crushed his head? Who, who is this? They sent another and they killed him? The Pharisees, just you can see them just getting angry. Who are these people who would do this thing? And then later, in Mark 12, he says they sent, he sent the Son. Finally, he said to them, they will respect my Son. And the tenants came and said, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give their vineyard to others. So all of these prophets, all of the prophets, from Malachi, even John the Baptist, they all came proclaiming the way of God and were all killed. They were all rejected. So when they asked Isaiah or John who he was, he goes straight to Isaiah's prophecy. He says, I'm not some itinerant preacher. I'm not some high school dropout who couldn't do anything else and I decided to go into the ministry. I'm not anyone like that. I am sent by God. And I'm not intimidated by you. And he said, okay, well, if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, why are you baptizing? This is verse 25. In other words, what gives you the right? What gives you the authority to baptize? He said, I baptize with water. You have to understand too, at this time, baptism was something that you did to yourself. The baptisms were, were something that you did as an act of repentance to yourself. And John takes this upon himself. He starts baptizing people himself. So they ask, why are you baptizing? And his baptism pointed to the purification that would come by Jesus Christ. He says in Matthew 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one is coming mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, referencing the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the people, the disciples on Pentecost, and then into every believer. It's a spirit of purification, of sanctification. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he's coming to purify you. The baptism, the baptism and repentance of John the Baptist resonated with just regular people. All of us, we would have been running to John the Baptist. The ones who rejected John the Baptist were the religious leaders, the rulers. Very few of them were baptized at all. Luke 7, we read that the Pharisees and the lawyers all rejected the counsel of God. They were not baptized by John. And it's if, as if John were saying here, you're asking me who I am and what authority I come to baptize? What you really should be asking is who I represent. That's the real question. And that's exactly where he goes. He said, I baptize you with water, but among you stands someone you do not know. Even he who comes after me with 
the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Two things I think stand out to me in this passage. Among you stands one you do not know. Think of the, the blindness and the depravity of man. They, they expect the Messiah to come. They're anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And he's right there amongst them. He's in their midst. And John says, you don't even know him. The long-awaited Messiah was right there standing with them, and John saw it. But secondly, we see the great humility of this man. He says, he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The disciples of any rabbi would basically become the slaves of the rabbi. They do everything he tells them. They go everywhere he goes. They imitate him in every way. He takes off his coat, they take off their coats. He sits down, they sit down. He stands up, they stand up. They follow in his steps. Literally. They follow in his steps. They try to do everything that he does. Obey his every word. Imitate him in every way. But even a disciple of a rabbi was never expected to wash the feet of the rabbi or to unstrap his sandals. Those were tasks far too low. Those were tasks for slaves. This is the lowest duty of all. Lower than a disciple of a rabbi would ever consider. And John is saying here, not only do I consider myself to be the slave, the true slave of Jesus, I'll be the one who would untie his sandal. But he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. I'm even lower than that. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. And this is the man whom Jesus said was the greatest of men born among men. This is the man who Jesus described as the greatest of all the prophets. And he considered himself as nothing before Jesus. And this is all of our example. This is everyone who has come to Christ in reality. We all see Jesus as much, much greater and ourselves as much, much lower than the Almighty God. The more you know Christ, the more you think of him unless you think of yourself. Isn't it interesting that the three greatest men, potentially, arguably, the three greatest men of the Bible, Jesus, John the Baptist, and Moses, all are described as among the most humble men who ever lived. Jesus, of course, in Philippians 2, we tell him he's the ultimate example of humility. He left his glory in heaven and he came down as a slave. John, we just read, considered himself to be lower than a slave. Moses, we read in Deuteronomy, is the most humble man who ever lived. And we're called to imitate Christ, just as John and Moses did. And even Jesus came and washed the feet of his disciples, the task of a slave. In contrast to the humility we see in Jesus and Moses and John, we see Satan. And pride. It's the greatest of all, the first of all sins, certainly. It's the sin that produces every other sin. The sin of pride causes rebellion against God and His law. The sin of pride produces every kind of other wickedness. And this is a first point of application, is that we as Christians need to produce 
humility. We need to strive to be humble. We need to reject pride. Actually, there's no such thing as a prideful Christian. It's an oxymoron. It's an impossibility. It's like saying there's a pregnant man. It's just not possible. There's an honest politician. Well, maybe that is possible. There's dry water. It's not possible. Prideful Christian. It's not possible. Because the Holy Spirit destroys pride. He destroys the first sin. Not that you'll never struggle with pride, but it's going to be something that He destroys. Little by little. Until the coming of Christ or until your death. So hear this warning, Christian. Beloved. Don't let pride stay in your heart. And even a small way, the prideful can have little hope of the resurrection. All the promises of God are for those who are humble before God. And pride leads only to all kinds of other sins. Selfishness, and bitterness, and unrepentance. It destroys families. It destroys churches. Christians should all be like Becoming like Jesus, like John, like Moses. In all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Jesus said, if you remember, I'm gentle and lowly at heart. And to the truly repentant, Jesus is gentle and lowly at heart. But how did Jesus treat the prideful on the earth? These prideful men whom He faced for three long years of ministry who did nothing but accuse Him and challenge Him and question Him and try to trap Him. These hard-hearted, arrogant Pharisees hostile to God's Word, twisting His own words for their purposes, always seeking somehow to get Him and try to kill Him. Was He gentle and lowly with these men? No, He cursed them. They were prideful. And all of the, the sin that came out of their pride. We need to repent of our pride. We're all tempted with pride. And yet the Spirit of God put His humility in us. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can overcome any sin. We need to be humble like John, like Moses, like Jesus. Secondly, the second point of application is we need to be patient in waiting for God to fulfill His promises to us. Moses prophesied 1,300 years before Jesus. That's a long time. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus. Malachi, 400 years. You say, well, it's been so long. I've been struggling for so long with this thing. Where, where's God? Where's His promise to me? To be with me. To comfort me. To never leave me or forsake me. To show me some, some measure of peace in the midst of this difficult hour. To bring comfort in the midst of trial. And difficulty. Where is the promise of God? Where is this coming salvation? Where is His answer to my prayers? My prayers for my family. My prayers for, for my church. God, when are you going to answer me? We need to be patient. God's timing is perfect. He's not making any mistakes. Brother, sister, be patient. If you are under some type of affliction or tribulation at this time, be patient and wait for God. Trust Him. He's worthy of being trusted. I'll conclude with the declaration that John makes when he sees Jesus coming the very next day. 
he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This declaration of John the Baptist is central to understanding the whole book of John. And the other Gospels, maybe the last three or four chapters, maybe two chapters in some, I think in Mark, are devoted to the Passion Week of Jesus, to His death and resurrection. In John, it's almost the last half of His Gospel. This is central to understanding what the Gospel writer John is doing. He clearly saw that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And this is the first time that Jesus is called the Lamb of God in a messianic sense. The rest of Isaiah 33 shows that John understood not only his mission, but the mission of the one he proclaimed. The first part of Isaiah 53 talked about his mission to make straight the way of the Lord. The last part of Isaiah 53 talks about the mission of his king. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked, verse 9, and with the rich man in his death. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the Lord will prosper in his hand. John the Baptist clearly saw that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, the perfect lamb. The perfect Passover lamb. So the call remains for everyone who hears the preached gospel to repent of your sins, to have faith in Jesus Christ, to count the cost, to take up your cross daily, to forsake your family, your friends, all of your comfort, everything on this earth that you think is valuable, forsake it all for Christ. To believe and trust in Him alone. And He promises that all who come to Him, He will never turn away. If you come to Him, you can trust that He will never turn you away. Today, pray that the Holy Spirit will suddenly come to His temple. The temple of your heart. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have given us Your Word. For Your own glory, You have given us Your Word. To glorify Your holy name, You have given us Your Word. But you've also given us your word to reveal yourself to us. That we might know the way of salvation. That we might know the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That we might know the way of repentance and faith. Or we are so inadequate to even take one step toward you. Indeed, it's impossible apart from a work of your spirit. And yet, once you move in our lives, you have us completely in your hands. We pray that you would open our eyes. For those who do not know you, we pray that their hearts would be softened, their eyes would be open, and they would embrace Christ, maybe for the very first time today. For those who have faith in Christ, who are just struggling, 
who feel like their wick is about to be extinguished, like their, their bruised reed is about to be broken in two. Lord, we pray that you comfort them with the comfort of the gospel, that you love your own. You've adopted them. You've called them by name. They are yours. You will sustain them. And for those who love you and are serving you and who are well comforted by the truths of the gospel, we pray that we would see you even more clearly. That you would open their eyes, 